Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thanks for downloading this show from PC1. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Day where we bring you a new podcast, and it's great to have you guys on board. And thanks to my good friend, Mr. Mark Slaughter, for bringing you our open music there. That is the guitar stylings of Mark. As a matter of fact, Mark Slaughter had him on my radio show not too long ago. He has a new record coming out. We'll be sure to have him on this podcast as well when that record is ready. Mark Slaughter, quite a guitar player. It's interesting because people don't think of him as a guitar player, even though that is his background basically just uh, being more known just for handling the mic uh, for all those years as a member of Slaughter. Anyway, good to have you guys here with us for another week of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Appreciate you listening wherever you listen around the world and downloading and streaming. You do that for free, and that's thanks to our great sponsors. Remember, go to podcastone.com. You'll find all the great sponsors of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. And because of them, we can bring you this podcast each week with limited ads and no additional cost to you. And if you heard a sponsor that you want to try out or forgot a sponsor and want to see a full list, you can access them by going to the Killer Deals button at podcastone.com and visiting the Eddie Trunk podcast page. We only approve sponsors who make sense for my audience, and each of my sponsors are listed there with the banners linked to the promotional deal and the promos listed by the brands. Everything you need, easily accessible in one place. That is my page at podcastone.com and the Killer Deals button. So thanks to all those sponsors. Thanks to you for supporting them. In addition to the Eddie Trunk podcast sponsors and the Killer Deals menu bar there, we also participate in the Amazon Associates program. That is an affiliate advertising program designed to provide a means for me to earn fees by linking to Amazon.com and affiliated sites. You can link to Amazon at podcastone.com. All right. So this week, after a big, big podcast that was much, much loved last week with the members of Triumph, my second interview that took place in Toronto, Canada, actually the day before 
the Triumph interview, and that is with legendary producer Bob Ezrin. As usual, most of my interviews here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast originate on my daily radio show on Sirius XM, Volume Channel 106, where you can hear me live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time or catch the replay every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time. And I went to Toronto to interview Bob Ezrin. Now, I love talking to producers behind-the-scenes people in the world of music, and Ezrin is one of the top in the food chain as far as that line of uh, interview is concerned. And my history with Bob Ezrin is very recent. I had him on my radio show to discuss Kiss Destroyer, and it wasn't a particularly landmark anniversary. I think it was 41st anniversary or whatever of that record. But it was a good excuse to try to reach out to him and get him to come on the radio show, and he did. He was nice enough to do it, and he called in, and it was a very brief conversation. We spoke for like 10, 15 minutes. He was in the middle of working with Alice Cooper. This is just like six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. And I had said to Bob, man, I would, I would absolutely love to be able to have you on for a full show. And we went back and forth a little bit, and he actually checked me out through Alice Cooper to make sure that <laughs> I guess I you get a fair shake and I wasn't a quack. Alice Cooper, thankfully, gave me a big thumbs up. And then we started talking about logistics because I really wanted to be able to do the interview with Bob in a uh, in a studio and, and not on the phone if I could help it. And Bob asked if, if Sirius XM had a studio in Toronto, and I did not know that we did, but we do. So it was of enough value to the brass at Sirius XM to send me to Toronto to have him live on the air with me for that interview. And we had a great, great conversation, and you're about to hear that conversation. We spent, I spent pretty much almost the entire two hours with him. So here on the podcast, you will, you'll get nearly a two-hour interview with Bob Ezrin. Did a little open at the top and then the, the Ezrin interview, which I believe is where we'll pick things up. And I believe at the end, if I, uh, my memory recalls, we may have crammed in a few phone calls from the audience listening for Bob as well. But listen, Bob Ezrin's history speaks for itself whether it be Alice Cooper, whether it be Pink Floyd, whether it be Kiss, whether it be so many other records you wouldn't even believe and think that he worked on, records like Hanoi Rocks and The Throbs and some other stuff too that, I mean, the list is way too long and I won't recount it here. And, you know, even with two hours with Bob, there were still a ton of things I didn't get through. Get through As as I was going through this interview and talking about his his earliest days and his childhood, I started to realize, like, for my radio audience, I'm like, oh my God, I'm running out of time here. I got like a half an hour left to go and I got to wrap it up. So I quickly had to move a little faster to touch on as many things as I could before I ran out of time for the radio audience, which again, where is, is where this interview originated. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this. Bob Ezrin, legend in the world of music production coming up for almost two hours on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. I'm sure with our commercials and breaks cut out, from the radio show, and if we pick it up with uh, leaving out my intro from Canada that day, I'm sure we're looking at a good hour and a half solid with Bob. 
Just a quick note, this weekend is the M3 Festival. If you're listening to this on Post Day Live Thursday, I'm driving to Maryland and getting ready to be back to host that Friday and Saturday. Very much looking forward to that. May 7th, we have the Ride for Ronnie coming up in Encino, California. May 5th, I'll be hosting Dockin at the IDL Ballroom in Tulsa. A week of broadcast, spending a week in Los Angeles the week of May 8th where I will be there and doing my radio show each and every day. A lot of travel, a lot of good stuff coming up. And hope you guys uh, follow on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk. Instagram, Facebook, at Eddie Trunk. EddieTrunk.com is the website. When you're on my site, as usual, you got the merch store, which is the uh, place where you can get Trunk Nation stuff, Eddie Trunk stuff. You can also email me through the site. You can also read music news updated daily. So much to do on eddytrunk.com, including all my appearances, just the the few I just mentioned, just a few of the ones coming up as they come in and are locked in. They will appear on my website right there on the homepage. Hope to see you out and about as I get ready to do some traveling and the summer concert season starts to kick off. All right, let's get a break here and then come right back and get into it. You guys are going to love this. I know you're going to love this. Bob Ezrin, brand new interview on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, in order to feel comfortable that you're getting a fair price, you need pricing context information that empowers you to feel confident when you're buying a car. And with True Car, you'll see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. What's better than that? From there, of course, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using True Car, you can easily find the car you want. True Car will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. And now you know what a fair price is, so you can feel confident. And once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by a True Car certified dealer for an actual vehicle on their lot. And it's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers, well, they're more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. And True Car users, they save an average of over 3000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. Hey, this is Richard Marks, the host of Song Talks, right here on Podcast One. Every week, I will explore the impact music has on our lives through interviews with singers, songwriters, and other amazing guests about the classic songs that have impacted them. Check out Song Talks every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. It is a good lengthy one. The entire podcast this week is with legendary producer Bob Ezrin from Toronto, Canada. Again, this interview originated on my SiriusXM radio show, Trunk Nation, which you can hear daily Monday through Friday from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Channel 106 Volume. Enjoy, ladies and gentlemen. I know you will. 
Good to see you, Bob. Thank you, Eddie. Well, good to see you, man, and it's Thank great you. to meet you face-to-face. I know you called into this show like a month ago, and at that time we said, you know, hey, it'd be great to do a whole show with you, and you were nice enough to make some time out of, I know, a very busy schedule uh, to talk about your career and your history, and, and here on your home turf. I mean, do you live in Toronto, or do you live in Nashville, or do you live both? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, we live both. I, I'm a resident of Tennessee. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, but we have a house in Toronto, and my wife is a resident of Toronto. Oh, okay. So I get up here as much as I possibly can. But as you know, this job takes you all over the world, and we spend a a lot of time in other places. Where do you do the bulk of your work these days? Uh, Your studio is in Nashville. Yeah, my studio is in Nashville. So the bulk of the um, the bulk of the Bob work, because there's there's various stages of stuff when I'm working on it. The bulk of the Bob work is Nashville. I, I have my my setup, my team. Um, it's, it's very easy for me to work there. And Nashville is an incredibly um, rich place in terms of resources for, for music, for anything to do with right. music, studios, players, equipment, anything. So, um, yeah, so that's where I'll do the most of that. But um, recording can happen anywhere. I want to start at the beginning with you because we are here in Toronto, which is your home area. And you, Toronto. 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 You, hey, Donna. Still wanna? You said to call you up when I was in Toronto. Toronto. There you go. <laughs> Name that tune, Eddie. What is it? Come on. Switching the glide. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Switching the glide. Switching to That glide. was a great song. It was a good song. It was wasn't a great it? Yeah. song, yeah. Um, but you started tell me about growing up here. Your your family, you you guys are originally from here, born and raised, and uh and where was the first introduction for the young Bob Ezra into the world of music? Like, what well, was your you know, first I, exposure? I, I've often said that I was um, incredibly lucky to grow up in this city at the time that I did. Um, we were going through an artistic explosion in Toronto in the 60s, and uh, um, and there were a lot of really great uh, musicians and players that, that were here, like uh, Oscar Peterson. When I was taking, as an example, my parents sent me to jazz guitar lessons with a great jazz guitar player named Hank Monas, who was internationally renowned. But on the other side of the window that I sat at in his studio, 18 inches away in the next building, was Oscar Peterson Trio rehearsing. So you can imagine I didn't get much jazz guitar because <laughs> I, was, I was like completely obsessed with watching Ray Brown and the way that he could play. Anyway, um, we had a lot of radio. We had a lot of TV here. And uh, the CBC was an amazing resource. Um, Within our family, we had uh, lots of musicians. My my grandfather on my mom's side was a linotype operator by day and uh, a song and dance man by night. He was an amateur vaudevillian. He uh, only lived until I was five, but in those first years, I, I, I will always remember doing song and dance routines with him, soft shoe with him, and learning how to sing "Me and My Shadow," mm. and uh, which I did with my daughter many years later on a cruise. Um, anyway, so we had that. My mother was a pianist. My dad played uh, bass in one of Canada's most famous big bands, the Bobby Jimby Orchestra, to work his way through medical school. And uh, and my uncle Sid was the largest private collect- collector of jazz, uh, jazz recordings in Canada, and uh, half owner of two coffee houses, one of which was on Yorkville Avenue here, mm-hmm. and part of the Yorkville Village, 
that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, so that, that that's the family side, and then um, completely by accident, my, one of my mom's best friends was a dancer with the CBC, and she invited the kids to come down and just see the studio. So my two, my younger brothers, who are redheaded twins went down and got spotted in the hallway by the producers of a TV show on Saturday night featuring a redheaded Irish tenor named Billy O'Connor. And they said, well, these kids don't sing, do they? And my dad went, five, six, seven, eight. You know, my, my brother's broken. <laughs> I want a girl just like the girl that married. Dear. So they went, you're hired. And they, they ended up being special guests on the Christmas show. And then they said, have you got any more of those at home? And I, I started working, too, at the CBC. These were not stage parents. Let me get it straight here they right. were like they didn't see this as being anything particularly different from our singing and dancing at family parties so i would just go to school and i'd have a note that would say please excuse bobby's absence this afternoon he has a tv show to tape and i would just get on a streetcar by myself go down to jarvis studio four here at CBC, sit in the green room, which I loved because they had a hot chocolate machine, which is the best <laughs> hot chocolate in the world, by myself, no stage parents, none right. of that stuff, and then we'd go and do the show. And I played, um, at, at one point, I played uh, Johnny Wayne's son on the Wayne and Schuster show. You're too young to even know who they are. Right, but you're singing at this point? Yes. You're, well, you're uh, just singing. You're not playing any instruments. No, not playing any instruments there. So the first thing... No, no, the not first there, thing, but we did start... Uh, all of us started piano and other kinds of musical lessons. Did it come easy to you? Yeah, sure. So so, so getting in, in, learning new instruments and learning piano or learning all... It was, it was an easy thing. It wasn't... It seemed very natural. It was totally natural. It was an all-singing, all-dancing family. Were you self-taught, or were you taking lessons at that point? No, were no, you... I took lessons. I started off with Mrs. Beaner, who would give me a sense, and if, uh, if I was a good boy and had, done my, <laughs> and had practiced my scales. Um, no, we all took lessons. I, I went to the Royal Conservatory of Music for five minutes here before I got kicked out, as I did from... Why did you get kicked out? Pretty much, I got kicked out of pretty much every school I was sent to in Toronto. Why? Because I was a rebel and I'd never be any good. <laughs> <laughs> was that you were told? Uh, well, they, they, yeah, I was told I'd never be any good, and yes, I was a rebel. Wow. Did that drive you? You know, I didn't see, I mean, school was, it was kind of dull for me. Uh, my dad was a, a brilliant uh, scientist and doctor and a professor of medicine here. And the conversations we'd have around the dinner table, the people that would come to our house and just sit and talk and all that stuff that was happening after school was so heady and brilliant and informed. And then I'd go to school and someone would talk to me like an eight-year-old. Okay, I was an eight-year-old, but I was used to being talked to like a young adult. I, I resented it. I found mm. myself resenting it. And I, and, and I was checking out amongst the peer group too. I had some, I had a few friends here who were really smart, really interesting, really kind of, you know, we were bohemians. Did you graduate high school? Did you go all the way through school? Barely. Barely. Yes, I, I, I did. I got kicked out of uh, high schools and then had to finish in here. We had, a, we had grade 13 here, mm -hmm. which was the equivalent of first year university now. Um, so I got kicked out of 
grade 13 halfway through and had to study on my own and write the exams on my own. Did you, most people and everybody knows you as a producer, and we're going to talk about your records and some of the bands you worked with. And again, we will take calls towards the end of the show for, for the audience as well. But um, I'm, I'm curious about the transition going from producer which I want to get to where that started, but you're getting all this experience as a musician. You're learning all these different instruments and you're doing all this. So was there a thought and did you, maybe I'm unaware of it. Did you have bands? Were you on the performing end of it and, and, and yeah, released well, a lot I was of music? In a, I was in a little folk group called the messengers, which was my mother's maiden name. And that was my cousin, Nancy, who's mother's maiden name was also messenger she and i had a a folk duo we used to play at the penny farthing which my uncle co-owned and um and at the same time there was this girl from out west beautiful blonde girl from out west named Joni anderson that would play that's Joni mitchell uh-huh. and um and uh and people like um jose feliciano played his first ever north american gig there but also gordy lightfoot was just down the street next door was a uh a band playing called the Minor Bird, and that was Rick Rick, um, Rick James and Neil Young as co-frontmen of a soul band. Wow! <laughs> believe it or not, wow. and down the street from there was a group called the Sparrow, which was John Kay and a guy who later became Mars Bonfire, and they became Steppenwolf. Right, and all of this was happening at the same time. It was amazing to be on that street at that time in Toronto. So where does the decision though, because there's an interesting sort of split that happens here because you're, 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 you're learning these instruments, you're doing some performing and some playing, but then you break off and decide I, instead of being the guy on the stage that everybody's going to see playing and become the, so the quote unquote rock stars, you're going to go another path. You want to be the guy behind the scenes, shaping those guys and making these records and producing and crafting these records. Where does that division happen? Well, I like playing with the stuff. I like playing with the gear, you know. And where, <laughs> Even here when you came in, you're asking about I how does this work and how you're making the connection. Well, I need one know, of those. <laughs> it's, I can't help myself. Tech but, junkie. So my uncle, who had this large jazz collection, also had tape machines and he had um, turntables. And my parents, when I, when I was, I think... I was probably 10 or 11. I got a tape machine for for Hanukkah. That, that was my gift. It was a little cheap Sears tape machine. But I would sit in my window and I would record and talk to myself. I was Bob King with the King thing. I had the King thing <laughs> all night in Toronto. And then I have this little, like, my little record player and I'd put records on in the background. Of that I'd so you were doing a radio tape. show to I was, tape. I was doing a radio show to tape for myself. <laughs> and, but I loved, I just loved tape. I loved the smell of tape. And because we were doing TV and stuff, we were in studios a lot. We were doing commercials as well. We were... Um, the voices of Shreddies, which was like mini shredded wheat up here in Canada. And um, so we did a lot of studio stuff. I just loved the studio. I fell in love with it. Yeah. And um, I didn't really think that that was any different from being on the stage. To me, it was all just creating, making, singing, playing stuff. And how it happened uh, that I I got a producer job was because um, – I was doing uh, musical theater here as well, and I was the script acting in it. Or no, I was the script editor of uh, of a show that was a, a yearly review, an annual review here in Toronto, and uh, and I hired writers to write sketches. I hired Lauren Michaels and Hart Pomerantz, his partner, wow. to write sketches for this stuff, and um, and we had they wanted to do it was a musical, 
review, and uh, they decided, well, we're going to do rock music because we need to be groovy, so we're going to do rock music. At that time, Michael Cole, who is perhaps the greatest uh, concert promoter of all time and was uh, manager of the Rolling Stones, but also the guy who invented global touring, Michael Cole, also from Toronto, and I were co-managing, I'm making uh, air quotes, co- air quotes right. co-managing a band called Icarus. Lead singer was a guy named Eddie Schwartz who wrote a song called Hit Me With Your Best Shot. This is Pat just, Benatar. Yeah. So, um, and, and we were co-managers, and I thought management meant working on their songs with them and working on arrangements. And Michael thought it meant booking them in clubs, you know. And so that's, that was sort of the definition of our, our, you know, separate career paths. But anyway, I talked them into to hiring our band for the show. And then uh, the guy who was the music director, he was a little uncomfortable with the genre, the form. So I said, no worries, I'll take care of it. And I ended up doing uh, arrangements for the material for the show and finding songs. I got songs from Bruce Coburn and songs for all these great young writers and stuff. And um, he liked what I did. And he said, I want you to meet my partner, Jack Richardson, who is the producer of the Guess Who. Mm-hmm. He could use a guy like you. Mm. So I went into Jack's office and said, I'd like to be a manager. And he said, no, no, you don't want to be a manager. You want to be a producer. Did you learn the ropes under him to Absolutely. some degree? He was very much your mentor? Yeah, not, not to some degree. To every degree. I would have no career if it weren't for Jack Richardson. He said, you want to be a producer, and this is how it works. He sent me to um, Eastman School of Music for a, a two-week intensive music production course under Phil Ramone and Dave Green, who were close friends of his, but they also, they saw something in me, I think, and and they just kind of took me under their wings more so than the other members of the class in a way. You know, I got tons of time on the console. I got lots of uh, feedback from those two guys, and they and they continued to help me after, after the course was over. And then Jack took me everywhere he went, uh, I went on a plane with him. I was the advanced guy. I'd, I'd work on the arrangements, and Jack would be there for the studio. But everywhere we went, whether it was a taxi, an airplane, sitting down for lunch, I had my little notebook, and I asked questions, like, all day. It, I must have driven him nuts, <laughs> <laughs> like, about everything, just like here. You know, was, okay, well, what's that? What, so a cardioid microphone, what does it look like? What does it do? Why do we use that right. on what instrument and so on? And that, that was, and he was incredibly generous with this knowledge and his time. And in fact, he wanted me to be successful. He, he was taking great pride in, in uh, grooming me. He's still alive, right? No, he passed away. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh, he did. Okay, but you stayed, I imagine, close with him throughout your entire career? I stayed in, throughout my whole, you know, my whole life. My his whole life, right. His whole life. Right. Yeah. And his son, Garth, is my partner in our school in uh, Vancouver. Who and had he, a successful career producing a has, lot. Has, has, Still has, has. Not, yeah. But I know from records that he did back in, I said had because I know records he did back in the 80s. He did right. some, some hard rock records and records that I like very much because I believe, he, if I'm not mistaken, he spelled his first name with like three G's. Or something like because that. Because he has a stammer. Garth Garth has a stutter. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's and it's notorious. And sometimes it's it's really um, sometimes it's really profound. So so instead of trying to hide from it, he, just, he said, I didn't know he, that. That's he owned what, it, so he, he took it. Good, good, good Garth. Yeah. <laughs> well, going and then moving moving into um, what you did, which of course was uh, w- w- was just your first production, was Alice Cooper. Is that correct? Yeah. Was it Love It to Death? 
So well, no, no. Actually, my first album production was "Love It to Death." I was the first thing you worked on that you got a credit. on? First thing I worked on that I got a credit on was I think called "Funky Sunflower" by a band called Cat. And what did you do on it? Did you produce it? Yeah, I was co-producer. I think I got a credit. I actually, I have to, I have to go take a look. Well, because you know, part of it was. you just sort of did your job, right? You didn't know, by the way, when you rewrote half the song that that was actually songwriting. You just thought that was kind of your job, right? And uh, and you also didn't know that you know there were that people paid royalties or anything like that. You got a you know I got a salary every week, and I just sort of did my job. I didn't worry about credits or anything like that. I was having such a great time being in the studio with all these fantastic people and with Jack. I did before that. I did some uh, sound-alike commercials because the production company not only did uh, rock record production, but we also did uh, jingles. But that's a big distinction as far as um, you making this decision to then go down this road as opposed to be the the performer and be the guy that gets all the glory. And and, and the other big thing about this is that you are, are known as this – fantastic producer which you are but you're also an accomplished musician yourself and a songwriter so when you would go in and work on some of these projects and want to help with the songs i mean some artists i'm sure would bristle at that like when we write the songs the producer but you're actually coming in and you're you're when you go into a project you're going all in you're going in to say Okay, if this needs a bridge i'm going to write the bridge for this thing um is do you work that out Ahead of time, does, in, in or does an artist say to you, there's no way you're, you're writing on my record, but I do want you to produce or do I this? I did have that. I had that with Roger Waters on the wall, where he basically said, not not just that not that there's no way you're writing. He said, well, I'm just not paying you any publishing. <laughs> he said, you can write all you want. You're not getting paid for it. And I said, okay, that's fine. So you know, did you write on that record? And yes. Not, you did? Yes. But, um, uh, you know, The Trial, that song which ends the record pretty much. The trial, um, I came up with the verse and chorus on that by myself. And I brought it in and said to Roger, you can't have this unless I'm a co-writer. And he went, oh, right then. <laughs> so do you have credit on the trial? Oh, yeah. Well, oh, you do? Yeah, yeah. It's two writers. It's him and me. Wow. And, okay. um, and on some of the other stuff, I, I, I did, I, I don't take over. I, it's, it's like what you said, well, this needs a bridge. I'm going to write it. But usually, um, in the process of working on the song, I spend a lot of time on pre-production with with the people that I work with because, for me, that preparation is 90% of the job. Um, But at that moment that you realize you have a bridge problem, then you all get together and you try to work on it. If you can't do it as a team, or if the person whose song it is can't come in with a good idea, then I'll I'll sort of take the reins and, and provide and I think that, you know, it's understood when I get brought into a project that um, I'm not a button pusher. I wasn't an engineer, really. I was a music guy who happened to learn a little bit about how all this works. But And so I always say to people at the very beginning, you know, if you're looking for a great engineer to sit there and capture your performance and that's all, I'm not the right guy. Mm-hmm. Because I can't keep my mouth shut. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. So, but if you're looking for somebody who's going to help you to realize whatever dream it is that you have for this thing or even help you to to articulate the dream in the first place to to define what that dream is and then to be able to get there if you're looking for that that's what i love to do 
We're talking live with Bob Ezrin, but I want to continue going through your career, and I want to pick it up when we come back from the break with Alice and with Love It to Death and how sure. he came on your radar and what that experience was like actually taking the reins and fully producing your first uh, official record. So we'll continue, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk some Alice. We'll talk some Kiss. We'll talk some Pink Floyd. Just so people know, too, because I, I, I did a little of my own homework, which – I admit I don't usually do because I, I like to think where Bob likes to think he knows what goes on in the studio. I like to think I, as you said, Alice Cooper told you, Eddie's going to know more about you than you know. Yes, that's what he said. <laughs> but I don't. Well, I checked you out because before you asked you asked if if I would do a longer segment right. after we had spoken before, and Alice was in the room. Okay, so I just went. Do you know this guy? He goes, Oh yeah, he's great. He knows more about you than you do. <laughs> I go, Okay, right. I'll do the show. Alice, the check is in the mail. Thank you, Alice. But uh, I wanted to, and there's. I would just run down a few things that people may not know. First of all, Bob produced the brand new Deep Purple album, which comes out or comes out any day. But uh, some of the other artists, just to give you an overview, and we'll, we'll pick it up coming back from the break, but everyone knows Kiss. Everyone knows Alice Cooper. Everybody knows uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, Peter Gabriel, Fish, recent record by Fish, one of the last biggest two. bands, the last two. Lou Reed Berlin. Um, you, you've done some work with, with the... the uh, uh, Bonham album, which I love, the the first one, uh, some great stuff there. Uh, there. There's a bunch of things that I want to touch on that uh, that people may not be aware. The Hollywood Vampires, Jane's Addiction, The Babies. I forgot. I didn't even realize The Babies. What a record that is. Hanoi Rocks, what many consider to be their great record. Mm. And Peter Gabriel. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on. So we'll get into some of that and a lot more with Bob Ezrin. Let's take a break right now. We'll come back. I want to pick it up with the, the emergence of uh, the introduction of Bob as a producer on Alice Cooper's album, Love It to Death. And we'll go from there. This, this is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Well, I've been telling you about Blue Apron for a while. It is a tremendous service. It really is. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients, that's what makes a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. And Blue Apron, take it from me, personal experience, it's great food. It's meals cooked the way you want to cook them. All the ingredients are right there, all the seasonings, everything you need, a handy uh, recipe right on a great little card. You can hold on to it if you want to learn more and use it again. And even somebody like me who's not good in the kitchen, is not good at cooking, can make incredible, great tasting, high quality meals. All the ingredients are right in that box when it comes to your doorstep, a nice refrigerated box so everything stays nice and fresh. It really, really is great. It's affordable, less than 10 bucks per person per meal. Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes. You can choose from a variety of new recipes every week. It's flexible. You can customize things. It's easy. It's guaranteed. Blue Apron guarantees their freshness. They promise that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. That's right. Three meals free with free shipping. All you got to do is go to blueapron.com slash Eddie Trunk, my name, E-D-D-I-E-T-R-U-N-K. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Blueapron.com slash Eddie Trunk. That's blueapron.com slash Eddie Trunk. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast.
live from Toronto today with Bob talking about his amazing career, which we just mentioned started with the first uh, album that he fully produced, Love It to Death by Alice Cooper. How did you meet? I mean, you, you still have a relationship with Alice. You're working with him yeah. now. You just worked with him in the studio. You did The Hollywood Vampires. A long, long history with Alice, going back to 71, I think, was that? 70. 70 was, was Love It to Death. How did you meet Alice? How did he come on your radar? Um, well, um, Alice Cooper, was, they played a famous um, uh they played a famous festival here where he was supposed to have bitten the head off of a chicken that that was that famous time, you know, mm-hmm. and, and thrown the body into the audience. And no, he didn't. But um, they they didn't make any money on this trip up here and they couldn't pay their hotel bills. So they so they stayed, you know, <laughs> like in the old days, if you can't pay your hotel bill, you just keep just stay until you can find another gig. Anyway, their manager, Shep Gordon, was thinking about what they needed to get over to the next level. You know, their records were pretty eclectic, easy action and pretties for you. And, um, were you aware of them? Were you aware of those records before? Not at all. No, no. And somebody had said to him, or he came to his own conclusion that Jack Richardson, the guy who does the guess who might be the perfect guy to produce Alice Cooper. So they started on a campaign to get Jack to do it. And all, and and listen, Jack Richardson was in his early forties, suit and tie guy, ex, Erickson McCann, you know, ad agency man. He saw the pictures of these creatures, <laughs> creatures snakes. of indeterminate <laughs> sex with snakes and they're wearing skirts and they got makeup. And he goes, no effing way. You know, we're, I'm not doing it. Can we swear on you? Yeah, channel? you can. Oh, we yeah. can. Okay. Yeah. So he did, but actually he would never have sworn. He wouldn't have said no fucking way. That's me. Right, right. But he would have said no way. And so he just say to me, get rid of them, get rid of them. And <laughs> make them go away. Make them go away. So <laughs> then, but but to them, he would say, "Well, the kid's going to check them out. If the kid likes them, then I'll take, then the I'll check them out. I'm the kid." So they were all over me. Finally, um, agreed to have me um, uh, see the band in New York. I got sent actually to sign someone else. And oh, by the way, at midnight that same night, go down to Max's Kansas City, see Alice Cooper play, and get rid of them. That was my job. <laughs> So um, I went down to Max's Kansas City with my f- f- new friend, uh, Alan Nichols, who was playing the lead in hair, which at the time was the most cutting edge thing, you know, on stage because there was full frontal nudity and it was a, like, anti-war. It was amazing. So this is like he's a hippie. He's supposed to know. And I'm just this, you know, I am a hippie, like a true hippie. I had coveralls and, you know. And uh, Birkenstocks or something. Anyways, we go down to Max's Kansas City and they play their show. Honest to God, it was one of the most uh, astounding things I'd ever seen. And everybody in the joint had spider eyes and they were wearing spandex. They had black fingernails and jet black hair and black lipstick. And they knew all the words to all the songs. And and we were right at the front of the stage. The band was like three feet away from us. They were so raw and full of kind of sexual ambivalence and violence and other kinds of energy. But some of the songs were also really cool. And by the time it was over, you know, I looked at him and he looked at me. I went, what was that? He said, I don't know, but I think I I liked it. And I said, well, I think I fucking loved it. And I went running up the stairs at Max's Kansas City to the dressing room without thinking. I just go running up the stairs, burst into their dressing room, and I went, we'll do it. We will do it. We're going we're gonna to make a hit record with you guys. I'm telling you, we're going to make hit records. And they go, great. And I go, great. And they I, didn't say, wait, you're not Jack. Who are you? No, but they knew that I was there to be the one to say, 
you know, that Jack should check right, it out, right? right so, right. like, they knew that if I liked the band, then Jack would go to the next stage. Right. If I didn't like the band, it was over. I go, I, I not only liked the band, I signed them. You know, I was like, we'll do it. And then I go outside of Max's Kansas City, and I'm walking down the street. I'm high as a kite, like, on the energy of all this. And as it all dawned on me for a second, I, I stopped, and I looked at my feet, and I went, I am so fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! What did I just do? So then I had to get back to Toronto, and I called. I called Jack's partner, the one who picked me out of the out of the musical, and um, and said, "You know, I think I've done a terrible thing." Ooh, look, sirens! Yeah, there's not. We're we're facing glass right off the street here, so we you are hearing road noise. We are not. This is, we're not in a soundproof studio. This, no, and this, this is really close here. to us. They're coming for us. Yeah, exactly. Somebody's been listening. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you know, I called Alan and I said, oh, my God, I think I made a terrible mistake. And he said, you get your ass on the next plane back to Toronto. So I did, and I, and, and I was rehearsing in my head what I was going to say, and I burst into Nimbus 9, into the office, went bursting in, a, in a, uh, Jack's office, and I went, you don't understand. This wasn't rock and roll. There were no T-shirts. There were no jeans. They had lights and sets and everything. Everybody had spider eyes. They had spandex. They all had black lipstick. This wasn't just plain rock. This was the beginning of a cultural movement. And Jack was, you know, and I stood up on his desk. Like, I got up on his desk <laughs> to yell at him, and he finally said, stop. He said, enough already. If you like it so damn much, you do it. And that was the beginning of my career. And was that, did you have to sell that to the band? Because yeah, we they, didn't you tell them. <laughs> so, so the first thing we did, well, we lied to them and we said, okay, well, Bob's going to do the pre-production. Jack will be there soon. It was like waiting for Godot. <laughs> I don't know if you know the play. Um, so, uh, so I go down to Pontiac, Michigan to work with, with Alice Cooper. And, um, but we, you know, luckily we bonded in a big way. Yeah. And um, I've told the story a million times, but it's probably worth repeating just because it was such a great experience and so formative and in a way set the tone for how everything else in my life has gone since then. But so, I, you know, I got an address for these guys. I drive up to their place and uh, in Pontiac, Michigan, I'd stayed at a Motel 6 the night before, you know, I didn't even want it. I didn't want to take my clothes off to sleep. And I and I go there in my in my own car and. And there's nothing down this street except a boarded, boarded up farmhouse, and this can't be it. But I decide there's nothing else here, so I go around the back of the boarded up uh, farmhouse and uh, stop the car, and staring at me outside my window is a three-legged dog. Like, <laughs> like I, something out of a movie. No, this is, this is beyond a movie. So I go, nice doggy, nice doggy. I open the car door, and I sort of slink around to the other side, and the dog's like, <laughs> on his three legs. And then I go to the, the back door, which is swinging open. <laughs> in the breeze, you know, it's like last picture show or something. And and it's open. So I, I go in and I, uh, you know, it's a little darker than outside. I get my bearings and I can see to the right of me, it's the kitchen. And there's there's like a sink full of filthy dishes and stuff. And there's a casserole on the counter that's a science experiment. There's unknown creatures growing out of this thing and everything. So I, I quickly go around the corner from there through a beaded curtain into a dark room. I reach to the wall for a light switch. And instead of gathering a switch, I have my hand on a cock and balls that I look at and it's wearing glasses and has a cigar sticking out. It's a, you know, fake cock and balls. And I was like, what? You know, I jump from there. Like a haunted house. Oh, yeah, this was unbelievable. I look at the bed. Now there's two creatures in the bed, and I don't know what they are, but one of them has braided mutton chops, and they're both wearing Dr. Denton's. But they both have 
just a, a, a shower of blonde, of matted blonde hair, right? So there's two blondes in bed in Dr. Denton's, and one of them's got braided mutton chops. I said, I'm getting out of this room. So I go, I, there's another beaded curtain, which I, I exit through. And as I part the curtain, I'm standing face to, I don't know what, with a six and a half foot frog. It's frog. a guy wearing a frog head who looks at me, and what does he say? I'm Alice Cooper. Ribbit. Come on. <laughs> I swear to you. I almost fell off my chair. Ribbit. It's Dennis Dunaway. Now I found out later that this had to do with a, a dare that his, you know, he and his girlfriend had that, that until they made up, he was going to be a frog until she kissed him and all that stuff. But listen, I just gotten there. You know, I didn't yeah, know any of this This stuff. is going to be so fun. He goes, he goes, Ribbit. And he turns around and walks away. That's it. So I'm standing there looking in an empty room, and I hear beside me to the left, I hear... <laughs> and I look over, and there's a green monkey, seriously, jerking off, looking at me and jerking off. He's like, <laughs> uh, somebody so, in a monkey suit. No, a, a real monkey in a cage, and he's green. It's a real spider monkey in a cage. Holy and I shit. jump back from that. I go, Woo! you know, and then finally I go, hello, is there anybody human here? You know, and the door opens, and this kind of hippie-ish guy... Um, their road manager comes out scratching his head. It's the crack of two, by the way. 2 a.m. 2 in the afternoon. 2 in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> and he comes out, Mike Roswell, and he goes, oh, man, sorry, we partied hard last night. But he's still sleeping. He said, I'll get the guys up. And that was how it started. Wow. What an introduction to the world of uh, Alice Cooper, which would lead you to, to do, you know, Love It to Death and School's Out and Billion Dollar Babies and Welcome to My Nightmare. And as I mentioned, recent records as well, yeah. including Hollywood Vampires now. And, uh, you know, a relationship that, I mean, it's got to be special. I mean, that's it, sure. incredibly rare for anybody to have that sort of uh, relationship with the band for that consistently. And Alice seems like that. I mean, I know Alice, and he's a wonderful person, and he seems like that sort of guy. You mentioned his manager, Shep. I mean, he was even there back then, and he's still Alice's manager. Yeah. Like, there's a certain loyalty there, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of loyalty, yeah. and and it is very familial. You know, I think of Shep and Alice both as, as brothers, you know, brothers from other mothers. And... Um, We've never lost our relationship. There were periods of time when um, I got busy with other stuff or also there was there were eras in, Ad, in Alice's life, which he talks about, where he was into um, drinking and sometimes some drugs. And um, during those periods of difficulty, he hid from me because I would have seen it and I would have called it. Right. Um, but um, mostly we stayed in touch. And, uh, and in fact... We were talking earlier today about the um, uh, Music Hall of Fame here in Canada, which inducted me in 2004, and my wife was calling around to just get people to do videos and all that other stuff, and she called Alice and said, would you think about maybe presenting the award? He said, I wouldn't let anyone else mm. do it. Yeah. And he was like, there. So that's... That's a relationship I cherish and one that will keep going for the rest of my life, I hope. And did... did um. We talk, when you, you were on the show not too long ago, we, we had Jan briefly just talking about Kiss Destroyer, which was the first record you did for them for right. the first of three. When you worked with Kiss and you came into that for Destroyer, did I imagine Kiss admittedly being influenced and in fans of Alice, I imagine that, that they 
because you had already had such a great track record with Alice, that sort of played into their interest in working with you. Would I be right in that? Was there um, when, was that a conscious thing? Was that discussed at all? That well, you know what you did with Alice on this record, that sort of no, stuff. No, we come didn't up? talk. No, no, no. And and that rarely happens, by the way, where somebody says, "Well, I want to work with you because that sound you got on that song over there, that's what I'm looking for." Mm-hmm. I think that um, most of the time it's just because they enjoy something that I was involved with and they want to meet, and then we either click or we don't click. And um, in the case of the Kiss guys, we clicked beautifully you know we we were right on the same page very early on in discussion um but how i met them was here actually in toronto i was doing a, a an interview on city tv they had a, a rock interview show or music interview show rather and as i was going up the stairway to go to the studio they were coming down in full regalia and i had been as i told you called by um this young man here, Mike Longmans, who was a 16-year-old kid, my, my number was in the phone book. So he used to just call me and say, you know, it was really cool, man. This one is really cool. So he told me, he had told me about Kiss and said, they need you. They need you to produce their records. And honestly, I hadn't even heard them. I didn't know. But I ran into him like, you know, he, he said it on a Wednesday and Friday I bumped into yeah, him. Yeah, what an irony. You, you know, yeah. incredible irony. So I said, being the punk that I am, to Paul Stanley, are you happy with your records? And he goes, yeah, why? And I go, well... If, you, if you're ever not, call me. And that was that. And then some months later, I got that call. Which, of course, was, I mean, at the time they may have been, but in retrospect is, is a lie because they've talked about, not a lie, but, but not true, because they've talked about many times for decades now in interviews that they felt that those first three studio records that they made didn't capture the essence of what they were in any way and that they struggled with those well, that's getting easy. the sound it, they wanted. It's easy to say those things in hindsight. And right. I, think, I think a lot of the time, you know, when you're making stuff, you're so into the process and so into the stuff itself that you don't really know how you feel about it until you've had a little distance, Right. So at that time, you know, they were they were just coming up. People were really paying a lot of attention to them and they were excited about themselves. And here's a guy that they never met before. They knew my name because of Alice Cooper. I said, I'm Bob Ezra. And they go, OK, we know who you are. And I said, well, I know who you are. And uh, are you happy with your records? And that was a little bit of a challenge. Right, me. right, right. And they were coming off of finally breaking. I mean, they had finally just broken with the live record with Kiss Alive. A couple quick more things on Kiss. We talked about Destroyer when you were on this show. Well, that's what you called in about. We talked about it. Um, I did not realize until I read this book that came out recently, which you were interviewed in called Shout It Out Loud about the making of Destroyer. Yeah. Th- because Destroyer was my first Kiss record. It was my introduction to the band. It was a game-changing record for me as a kid. But I didn't realize that there was a substantial backlash to that record when it initially came out because it was so light years different than what they had done before in a production standpoint. How did you handle that at the time? Because you were the guy behind the whole thing. I mean, in the book, it even says that there was talk of them possibly even pulling the record at one point. Is that true? Yeah. Well, I I don't know about them pulling the record because I think the record company recognized that they had something to play with. But um, the, the band was not happy and the management were not happy. I mean, they were very, as I said, when you're making something, you love it. And the band was extremely happy with the process. And they were doing things that they'd never done before in the studio. They were playing better than they'd ever played before. And um, and that's them playing, by the way. I know, you know, Dick Wagner played a couple of solos. But aside from that, I mean, that's that rhythm section. And... Um, and and Stanley sang his ass off. I mean, yeah. it was really they really 
outshone themselves. Yeah. Right? So <clears throat> they loved uh, they loved the doing of it. They were very proud of it. But as soon as it started to go to some of the older fans or some of the people that they had known from before, there was a backlash because it was so different. And um, and then they began to doubt because that's what happens when you're a performer and before you hear the applause, in between the finishing of a performance and hearing the applause, it is the nature of the performer to go to a doubtful place. Mm. Which is one of the reasons why when I'm working in the studio, I say to engineers, young, young producers, anybody, the minute they stop playing, I get on the talk back. I leave no time for them to stand in the dark wondering how they did. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because that's a terrible thing to do to somebody. You know, yeah. it's the same thing as if a play would end and nobody applauded. You know, the cast would be standing there going, uh-oh. And then it erupts. And then they go, wow, we were great. So anyway, you know, there was that period of time where they were able to, they were allowed to doubt themselves. And then some of the people that knew them, and one review in particular, really reamed us for the stuff that we had done. One guy called it Anne Margaret Horns. And... uh and how he wanted to come up to Toronto and punch me in the nose on behalf of KISS fans everywhere. Wow. Literally in the review. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and then I went away on vacation, um, after having delivered the thing. Um, and when I got back, I, w- I was living in New York at the time and I had an answering service in the days when you had ladies answering your phone for right. you. And, um, I got back from from our vacation, and the lady from the answering service says, where have you been? I said, well, I've been on vacation. She said, Mr. Douglas has been calling you and calling you, and you'd better call him because he seems very, very upset. So it's okay. I called Jack Douglas, and he said, look, I don't know how to deal with this, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do, but I got a call from Bill O'Coin asking me if I would be willing to do the next Kiss album. Wow. Now, wow. Jack Douglas worked under you? Was yeah, he was, my, he was my, he started off as an assistant engineer, then became an engineer, and then I started his career as a producer. And, in and fact, for people that don't know, because not everybody's as into this stuff as you and I are, Jack Douglas uh, is, is a producer, is, what he's best known for is doing all the classic Aerosmith records, also worked with John Lennon and all these uh, icons, but, but I think you turned your mic off, Bob, by accident. Um, but the the Aerosmith uh, the Aerosmith records, which Jack did their most recent one, as a matter of fact, I as actually well. did that on purpose. I was kind of hoping to sneak out of the. You, <laughs> caught, you caught me, Eddie. Eddie caught me. Okay, carry on. Yes, Jack Douglas. So yes. he, he he was you you he much was, like much like um, Jack Richardson brought you very under. much like Jack Richardson brought me under. And, and it's exactly how that was exactly the relationship that Douglas and I had where I said, you know, look, I'm going to bring you along. And then at a certain point, just like Jack, I was I let him fly. I said, you know, I'm not going to hold you up here. I don't want you to be an indentured servant to me. Here's your career. And here's Aerosmith. So so was Jack was Jack. Well, well, see, there's so much to talk about. This is why I, we'll get to the uh, Jack Douglas. Just backtracking a second produced Aerosmith's Get Your Wings, their second record. You were executive producer on that yes. record, correct? They'd asked me to produce it. I was in the studio. You know, I don't know if the dates line up. In my head, it's because I was working with Kiss. Um, might have been Alice Cooper. I don't know what it was at that moment, but I couldn't go in when they wanted me to go in. And also, I wasn't sure how long um, Stephen would last with me. Because I'm just 
so intolerant of bullshit, you know, and at that time he was very much a prima donna. And even then, because they hadn't really broken yet, second album, but even yeah, then but he, he was, was, he's huh? always been. And, and, you know, that's part of his charm, too. I mean, part of what makes him Stephen is just his larger than life personality. And right. he is a prima donna. He'll be the first person to tell you about it. But um, I thought Jack, who had a Jack's a much uh, more even kind of even tempered, quiet sort of guy. And I thought that he might be a much better day-to-day person to be in the studio with Aerosmith, but I'd be the executive producer. I'd watch over the project. And um, so it took some convincing, but they allowed us to do that. And then they had such a great time with him. They loved it. And it was time to do the next one. But I had them signed. They were, I had the production deal with Aerosmith. And um, I took Jack for a ride around the park one day in a car and just said, you need to go out on your own. You need to fly. <laughs> yeah. You need to stop taking a salary from the record plant. You need to stop taking a salary from me. You need to become your own guy. And um, here's Aerosmith. You've graduated. Congratulations and best of luck. So off he went. So back to Kiss. You would do, do Destroyer. I don't mean to gloss over Destroyer, but there's so many things we need to get to here. The um, You would work with Kiss again about six years later on an album that is incredibly polarizing to the KISS fan base. There are some that feel that it is this undiscovered gem and this this record that nobody understands that's a masterpiece. And there's others, including the band at this point, Gene and Paul especially over the years, who said they just think it's a pile of rubbish and something they shouldn't have done. Um, you have very conflicting viewpoints on music from The Elder. Your take on the record in retrospect? Well, you know, I, I used to say about it that it would, you know, we should have been shot before we were allowed to do it, or, you know, I was very, um, I was very denigrating. And, but I hadn't listened to it in forever. I hadn't listened to it since way, way, way back. So they were doing a book about it, um, the authors of which are on my permanent personal shit list for the rest of of their lives because they got me into such hot water with Paul Stanley that he and I don't talk to each other anymore, which breaks my heart. But um, they over what exactly? Does, what did it, they say that was erroneous that you wrote in the book? Though, they, can you it's, say? it's not in the book, and it was a um, it was a sort of off the record remark at a time when I was sort of pissed off about Paul's. Uh, biography and some of the stuff he was saying about Gene and anyway it got back to him and that was the end of that but he's a sensitive man I know firsthand he's a very sensitive yes. man but but in the process of talking to these people they were playing the songs to me again I hadn't heard them in so long and there are moments of there are really brilliant musical moments on that record there are also cringeworthy embarrassing <laughs> Uh, moments, particularly for Paul. I feel, I feel the worst for Paul after listening back to the record because he, he was forced into a position where he had to be almost operatic. And it, in a way, it's almost, you know, th- this was a little bit of foreshadow for him doing the Phantom of the Opera, by the way. The Paul Stanley, who played the Phantom, um, up here, he did nine months as the Phantom of the Opera right. in Toronto and, um, and sold out the whole run. He was amazing. He was brilliant. But that was the same guy who sang on The Elder. It was a very operatic, you know, uh, musical theater voice and so on. It just didn't belong. And it didn't belong to Kiss. And I think it must have put him in a terrible position. Um, but he bo- it wasn't like we forced him. He bought into the concept. So did Gene. We were all really into the concept, concept except for Ace, who felt it was not rock. It wasn't right. And he didn't really want to have much to do with it. And And... 
Anyway, at the end and of Eric the day, Carr is a brand new guy at that point, so Eric he doesn't Carr have was a, a voice. He was yeah. a brand new guy, but he loved what he was playing. So look, you know, you go back, and there are some, as I say, there are some moments on there when when they were playing stuff for me. I was listening, and going, "Wow, that's sophisticated. That's really amazing music." And then every once in a while, I was saying, "Oh my God, you know, I can't believe I did that." Yeah. In the interest of again, in the interest of time moving forward, I want to just hit a few other things. We'll go to a break. The phones are jammed. We'll let you fire away at Bob Ezrin as well. Um, you would do one more album with Kiss, which was Revenge, which is heralded by many as a, a great record. Many do love that record. Uh, fans do. The band themselves have put that. Uh, a lot of times when I read interviews with, with Gene or Paul, they ask about the three de- definitive Kiss records, and you produce two of them, which would be Destroyer. They they cite Revenge and also yeah. Creatures of the Night, which you were not involved in. But um Revenge, a better experience for you? Was it getting back to more of a meat and potatoes approach for Kiss? Yeah. Well, listen, Revenge was um, Revenge came out of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where we got to got back together to do God Gave Rock right. and Roll to You, and that you know, just being in the studio doing that reminded us that we actually love each other, and you know, um, the elder aside, you know, we <laughs> we should we should be working together, we should be in the studio together. So, um, so then we did the album and, and, uh, because the, you know, the makeup was off and the, and the album, it was a kiss album, but it was a kiss rock album, like really heavy rock, rock, yeah. rock. Oh, yeah. and, and I love heavy rock. I mean, that's what moves me more than anything except for maybe heavy metal classical, which I love, you know, well, two uh, cellos you did, right? Yeah. That's not heavy metal classical when I'm talking about things like, um, oh, real classical Tchaikovsky, pieces, right? You know, oh, okay, okay. Some okay. of that stuff is is the heaviest of heavy, right? But so um, I really loved doing the record, and we had some great songs. But the, for me, the highlight of the record was knowing that the number one song in strip clubs across America, take it off, was take well, take it off, and number two was Domino. So I had I had one and two on the strip on the strip <laughs> the strip club top I think ten. Kane, didn't Kane Roberts co-write "Take It Off"? I think he did. Did he? I yeah. don't remember. Yeah, I, I believe he did because I just met Kane for the first time recently. But I think he did. Um, all right. So again, we can go to Kiss. We can go to uh, Alice Cooper. We can go to any of the amazing records. As I as I mentioned before, um, the the list goes on and on with Bob and and some of the. I, I realize I'm not hitting everything here. We just don't have the time, and I want to give you guys, as I promised, a good part of the show to call in with your questions. But before we go to the phones, the rest of the way. And I, uh, I take this break. You, isn't he? I'm just terrible. setting it up. I'm trying yeah, to give yeah. everybody the lay of the land. Bob, well, there's too much to talk about. We need to do a week together. <laughs> um, Pink Floyd. Yes. How do they come on your radar? You, of course, the first thing you would do for them, and not the only, but the first, well, you would do the wall. Okay, let me let me tell you how they came on my radar. Um, Alice Cooper were the biggest Pink Floyd fans in the early days, like when I first went to. Alice Cooper went to work with them in Pontiac, Michigan. They played me T-Rex and Pink Floyd. They loved them. See, and, that would be surprising to me right there because I, I, I don't know if I, if I get the... I, I would think that I would think of Alice Cooper as being like more of a garagey sort of loose band for some reason back then, as opposed to being into these, you know, this this sort of, you know, I, I don't know. Alice Cooper was an art band, yeah, and they're all yeah, art yeah. students, yeah. and and Pink Floyd were all art students, and and they were an art band. It was just a different kind of art yeah. from a different yeah. time. Yeah. But when we went on the road, and I say we because in those days I used to travel with the band a lot. I actually played with them for a while until uh, my wife kind of bottom lined it. <laughs> for me. But um, 
can't imagine why. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but, we, you know, we were on the road promoting I'm 18, the single. They asked me to come along. So we would go to radio stations around. And, and the first question a, a DJ would ask you after talking about the record and playing your record is, what are you listening to? So... I like to credit Alice with spreading the gospel on Pink Floyd around the FMers in in America. It was really remarkable. Like a lot of these people, I'd never heard of the band, and they would put something on from Saucer, Full of Secrets, or Adam Hartmother, and they would go, "Wow, you know." I can't remember if it was Adam Hartmother in those days or not, but um, so that's how I knew about them. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon was a transformative experience for me, listening experience, and uh, made me really think about what I was doing and uh, made me jealous. You know, there's, mm. a, there's a whole long list of records that made me jealous. That one made me really jealous. <laughs> and, um, and then I, had, I met uh, Roger at a party in London, and the woman who became his wife, Caroline, uh, his first wife, actually worked for me in London. Okay. So, and when she started to date Roger, she wanted us to meet. And then when, uh, on the animals tour, when Roger, Roger was lamenting having to be the guy all the time and was thinking that, you know, he'd, he'd like someone to work with, with the band, Caroline engineered us getting together. We rode actually from here, Toronto to Hamilton, Iverwind Stadium, where they blew up the scoreboard at the end of the show with their pyro. <laughs> but um, we drove out to Hamilton, and that's where he said, I often feel like just putting up a wall between us and the audience because I can't stand it anymore. And he, was, he said, and I, I feel bad about it, but I found myself spitting at somebody. You know, It was that sort of thing, right? And then on the way back... We kept noodling on that, and I and I said, you know, well, if you ever decide you want to build a wall and stuff, you know, like call me, I'd love to help you. And, and year, a few years later, maybe not a few years, maybe a year later, I got the call. Going into the, I mean, they're coming off of Animals, right? That was the previous record. Yes. And you're going into this, and then you get Roger. I'm sure gives you the concept and tells you what the story is going to be? Well, he invited me to his house in the country and uh, where little Harry was walking around. He said, Look, Daddy, in the sky. Is that an airplane? And we said, record that. No, I'm kidding. But he was that, that was little Harry <laughs> who said that on the record. Um, who's now a musician in his own right, very talented guy. And uh, uh, But anyway, uh, I went to Roger's house because he wanted to play me what he had been working on and it was two different projects. One um, became Radio Chaos and the other one became The Wall. And he played me these two things. There was lots of material for the Radio Chaos um, and uh, maybe it was Radio, maybe it was something else. What was the other one? The other solo? Um, pros and Cons. Pros and Cons. Sorry, that's what it was. It was Pros and Cons. And um, sorry, Brain Fart. And and then he played me this 45-minute long song that went, da, 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 da. and it talked about how daddy was in the war and daddy died. And then I was really sad and then I was a rock star. And then I wasn't a rock star. And then I did. But I mean, but there were moments of absolute genius, like, mother, do you think they'll drop the bomb? I mean, stuff that like made the hair on my arm stand up, you know. And even, I don't think we had another Brick in the Wall Part 2 yet. Um, but there were there were just these like brilliant moments and and the the atmosphere of it was so thick and um, and compelling and hypnotic and everything. So when he said to me, "Well, which of these two do you like?" and I said, "Well, that one, the wall, 
that one, that's that's the that's the thing we should work on. And of course, the band had gone through the same exercise with him listening to both, and they picked the wall. So there we were. Listen, I mean, when it, for people that don't know, momentary lapse of reason, division bell. You're you're a co-writer of the song "Learning to Fly." Um, there's so much with Pink Floyd as well that that Bob is. Uh, and I love I love working of. with them too, and I remain you know I remain really good friends with David uh, Gilmore and Nick Mason. Both I loved Rick Wright. He was a dear friend, and I saw him a month before he passed away. And um, Roger and I sort of had a falling out over, as everyone knows, publicly over me going with the the other Pink Floyd right. in his head and not sticking with him. Right. Um, but nonetheless, we still have a, a you know deep mutual affection and admiration and. Um, there, yeah, that was a great time. Last, you- last thing for me before I turn, I promise the calls the rest of the way. When you're working on a Kiss Destroyer, Alice Cooper, Welcome to My Nightmare, Pink Floyd, The Wall. When you're in it, when you're making it, do those records? Does it connect with? Does it hit you at some point that what you are making is going to be? I mean, I know you feel probably strongly about a lot of the records you worked on, but when you're making those sort of records, Billion Dollar Babies, does it strike you that these are going to be defining records in these artists' career, that you're really doing something extraordinary at the time? Yeah, I didn't really... I would say in the the first decade of my career, I probably didn't know what I was sitting on most of the time, um, though I got particularly excited about certain bits and pieces. You know, I was excited about Billion Dollar Babies for Hello, Hooray, pardon me, and for a couple of other things that were on that record that I thought were, you know, and the song itself, Billion Dollar Babies, that I thought were just really amazing. Um, But with the wall, you know, we were so busy in the trenches building this wall, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trunk, <laughs> Eddie, Mr. Trunk's wall. We were so busy in the trenches building the wall, brick by brick, song by song, part by part, that um, only when we finally stood back and played it end to end, which I did once in my rental house on Kings Road in Los Angeles to impress someone, um, I it was a girl. Of course it was. That's a hell of a move. <laughs> hey, let, let me play you this record yeah. I produced, yeah. and it's the wall. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Well, you know, she didn't if that know. doesn't get you laid, I don't know what will. Holy shit. Well, no, shit. I, I wasn't getting laid, but I was just trying to be I was just trying to be a stud, you know. I just wanted to be As I would yeah. have been too in that situation. Um, I was already I was already dating somebody in Toronto that I had, you know, that I was deeply in love with and who I ended up marrying and having my daughter Sarah with and all that sort of stuff. So this was just to be I was just showing off. All right. Oh, yeah. I was just showing off Why and I'm going like, "Hey, well, yeah, I just, but I also, I wanted to hear it. I wanted to hear it and I wanted to listen to it through somebody else's ears. And I was scared to play it for anybody that, in the business because I didn't want word to travel. Um, but when you hear something with someone else's ears, you really know what you got, you mm. know, or most of the time you do. So anyway, I put it on and played it from top to bottom on King's Road in LA when, you know, it was like a late afternoon. And, and as the sun was going down, the trial came on, you know, and it was, we're just getting to the end of the thing. And then, and then it goes around full circle and is about to start up again. And honestly, like, I didn't even care that there was somebody else in the room. I was just sitting there. I had tears in my eyes and I was staring at the wall where all these people, the, the wall of the room, where all these people had just been, you know, playing and singing and, and 
performing and doing all this stuff in this eyelid movie that they just gave me, you know. And um, and I thought, holy shit, this is big. Yeah. Bob Ezrin is my guest. we got to take a break. I promise you guys on the phones, the rest of the show is yours. Enough from me. I could go on forever. Uh, there's so much we haven't even begun to touch on, but I'll let you steer the conversation. We'll try to move quickly so we can get as many calls in as possible with Bob Ezrin. Break. Coming back with your calls next. Stick around. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. Audible, folks, you got to try it. You know, as uh, as you guys are listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it on the post day, I am in the middle of a five-hour drive headed to Columbia, Maryland, where I will host the M3 Festival this weekend. And what makes time go by better in the car than listening to a book? Now, you certainly can't read a book. If you're sane in any way, you don't try to read a book while you're driving, right? There's so many ways you can take in books now. And who has the time, really, to sit down and read them all the time? Sometimes it's great to listen to them, and that's where Audible comes into play. It really is an awesome service, and Audible is now offering a 30-day free trial, complete with a credit for a free audiobook download. It really is awesome. Get a free audiobook download, 30-day free trial, all you got to do is go to audible.com slash trunk, T-R-U-N-K. Over 180,000 titles to choose from. So many different devices, including iPhone, Android, Kindle, even an MP3 player. So many great titles. Divergent, Lean In, The Book Thief, The Girl on the Train, a novel, The Hobbit. Just a few of the titles you can get via Audible. And... Like I said, you can download a free audiobook, get a free 30-day trial. All you got to do, go to audible.com slash trunk. Again, that's audible.com slash trunk for your free audiobook. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. All right, let's uh, let's get Jay in Texas. He's been waiting almost an hour and a half to talk to you, Bob. Ooh, so, Jay, Jay thank you for your patience. You're finally on with Bob Ezrin. Go ahead, buddy. Hey, great show today. Um, uh, you answered pretty much my question in regards to the elder uh, with the overview, but I do have one quick question in regards to that. Do you think that because of the commercial failure of the, of the elder, and even though they – they, they toured with makeup, and they had a very abbreviated tour with Creatures of the Night. Do you think that that failure of the Elder contributed to any of the, uh, the the taking of the makeup off to get them back into the mainstream? And before you answer that, Bob, I saw just recently that you were the co-founder for Music Rising in New Orleans, and I'm a New Orleans native, so I see firsthand the charitable foundation that began with uh, Music Rising. I was at that Saints game for the return to the Superdome. Were you? Wasn't we, that amazing? It was it was a riveting performance by U2 and Green Day, and especially, which is now a theme song for the Saints, called The Saints Are Coming. How right. did that all germinate and, and come to uh, fruition? Thank you very much. Okay, so um, I, I'm really happy to talk about that, actually. And, and uh, uh, my sons came for that, which was fantastic. It made it even a better experience. We had this, we established this charity to replace the musical instruments that 
uh, were washed away or, or destroyed in the flooding in, in New Orleans. We figured that was the least political way of dealing with bringing New Orleans back to life. Mm-hmm. Because where there was music, there was hope, there was uh, optimism, there was a sense of community, and there was the soul of New Orleans. And where there wasn't music, people just seemed desperate and resigned to, you know, a, a terrible, dark existence. So The Edge... Uh, Henry Jeskowitz, who is uh, the head of Gibson Musical Instruments, and Marty Albertson, who ran Guitar Center, and I got together, and um, we raised, uh, well, Henry and Marty raised over a million dollars, and The Edge and I went out and raised millions more, and uh, we replaced instruments for 2,700 professional musicians for um, 60-some-odd churches and community centers and schools, and... um, and uh, one year after the flooding, we also uh, to raise some money for Music Rising, we did the pregame show for the Saints for the Saints' first home game back in the Superdome, mm-hmm. where just a year before people had been dying in right. the stands, right? And um, they played the Atlanta Falcons, another game the Falcons would really love to forget. <laughs> but um, so we did twelve and a half minutes where we had Green Day and and you uh, two together and and Edge found this this little punk song called the the Saints are coming and played it for me he said you know I think this is this would really work you know and I'm listening to it going holy crap it's like this was written right. for this day you know so that became um, the sort of that became the the. Uh, sort of pivotal moment within that presentation and then it ended up with Beautiful Day where they hit the, the audience with tons of light and and Bono talked about, you know, New Orleans and how we're all people too and it was so moving. At the end of this whole 12 and a half minutes, there was a one person in that building that wasn't on their feet with their fist in the air and tears streaming down their cheeks. One of the most emotional moments of my life. Of all the bands that you've worked with, there's obviously... Some you haven't. If there's, if you, if Bob Ezrin today could pick one band to work with that you never have, who would it be? You mean that still exists? Yeah. If you could work with the band today, give me one that doesn't exist and one that does. I mean, if you could go back in the time machine. Yeah. You know what? Listen, I'm happy with my life. I love what I'm doing and everyone that I, that I get to work with. There was a time when I really wished I could have worked with the talking heads. I thought that was just one of the most interesting, artful bands in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have loved that. I would have loved working with you 2 and um, because I love those boys and everything, but they have their way of doing things and, and uh, their way and their place of doing things, and I have mine. And, um, and of course, I was a huge Beatles fan, but I got to work with Paul McCartney, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd say so. But I got to sing with him. I got to stand next to him and sing. Really? Sing with Paul Yeah, Serp, as we call him. Another legendary uh, artist that Tim in Florida wants to ask you about working with. Go ahead, Tim. You're on with Bob Ezrin. On uh, the kids, on Lou Reed's Berlin, that's your children uh, crying. Yes, Tim, it's my children crying. And you want to know what I use to beat them with to get those (laughs) tears, right, Tim? Nah. (laughs) What's the question? You just wanted to know if they were Bob's kids on Lou Reed's Berlin? Yeah. Yeah, he confirmed that they are. They are. Thank you very much, Tim, for the phone call. Appreciate it. Let's talk to Ken, who's in Massachusetts. Hi, Ken. You're on with Bob Ezrin. 
Hi, how you doing, guys? It's an honor to talk to both of you. And let me put a plug in for the best underrated Bob Ezrin album is The King's first album. That's a great wow, album. Wow, were, were you listening to the beginning of the show? Uh, I, I was, yes. Yes. And I, I, I threw to Eddie the, uh, the lyrics for Switching to Glide, and he didn't, he didn't, I threw the ball, and he let Yeah, it, but I remember Switching to Glide. That's a great song. That's very power poppy, and I love power poppy sort of, little new wavy power yeah, poppy sort of thing. Yeah, very new wavy. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, thanks. I well, love well, doing that record. I love those guys. I've, I I actually just saw them again um, not that long ago. They're still here. And they're still, they play from time to time. Yeah, there you go. Go well, ahead, Ken. What's question, your question? My, my question is, obviously, with, uh, with the recent documentary and book that Shep uh, Gordon put out, how about Bob Ezrin? I think we need to, to read a, a biography or see a documentary on Bob Ezrin. Oh, boy. Um, well... I'm kind of busy. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're still. I mean, Bob, Bob produced the new Deep Purple album that's about to come out. I mean, I don't know what you're current. What else you're currently doing that you want to share with Cooper. us? Well, Alice Cooper. Yeah, we're finishing an Alice Cooper album. So just, I mean, you're you're as you never you never slowed down from when you started way back in the day. I mean, you're you no. I never slowed down. I did I did do other things besides music production. You know, we had a. Uh, uh, new new technology company, an interactive uh, entertainment company in California called Seventh Level during the '90s, and then I had a company that was uh, internet radio slash social media called Enigma Digital, which we sold to Clear Channel in the early aughts. And um, but I was producing at the same time. I did uh, Jane's Addiction and Deftones and you know, a bunch of stuff out there and, and stuff here. And now here we have a, a children's entertainment company called Wow! Exclamation point Unlimited. It's actually uh, kids and youth, and it's um, animation-centric. So we're working on that. I've got a couple of shows that I'm producing for the company as well as these, um, you know, as well as albums and stuff. It's a busy time. So there's no time to write a book. You're not ruling it out doing it have, at some point. No, but I'll tell you what. One of the reasons why I like to do this show, Eddie, was because I, I got to talk about some things that you're going to provide me with an MP3 copy of, right? Yeah, of course. So so I have some backup. Well, of course. Some, some, some new background information yeah. for the book at some point, at some point when I'm ready to slow down. Let's take uh, let's take one one final break here for the show, and then we'll come back. We'll continue with your calls, talking with Bob Ezrin on this week's Eddie Trunk podcast. This, this is the Eddie Trunk podcast. Well, if you have a dog, you've got to check out BarkBox. BarkBox is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. You tell them how big your dog is, right? And then you choose a plan. One, six, or 12-month plans are available. You can cancel anytime, and there's free shipping. And then BarkBoxes are shipped on the 15th of each month. It really is a great service. Every month, BarkBox, they pick the best all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies, heavy chewer preferences, things like that. All of the edibles, they're made in the USA or Canada. 100% of the products are, are tested on their own animals. So it really is trustworthy stuff. BarkBox, it's a great way to try a variety of treats, keep your dog engaged, keep your dog excited, toys, Treats, the whole nine yards, you're going to love it. Free shipping on any BarkBox within the continental U.S. as well. 
So you got to check it out. BarkBox really is awesome. Here's the deal. You get a free extra month of BarkBox if you visit getbarkbox.com slash trunk when you subscribe. A whole free month, ladies and gentlemen, of BarkBox. All you got to do is go to BarkBox.com slash Trunk, T-R-U-N-K, and subscribe. GetBarkBox.com slash Trunk. This This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Jack in West Virginia has been waiting for a very long time. Thank you for doing so, Jack. You're on the air. Hey, Mr. Ezra, this has been a real treat today. I just got a couple quick questions, and I'll hang up. One, when you first met Alice and you fought to produce him, did you realize how big he was going to explode? I mean, he owned rock and roll. Those first five albums you guys did together, he was like the biggest thing in rock and roll for a few years there. Second question I, is, no, I'm sorry. Do you want to answer that one? Let me answer that one real quick. And uh, sure. Did I realize? Yes, I really believed it. Like that stuff I said to Jack Richardson after I saw them in New York, I really believed this was the beginning of a cultural movement and these guys would be at the forefront of it. Next. Well, we're, we're, all, lucky you, we're all lucky you picked up on that. Number two is you have a, re- a way of dragging out really good performances by musicians that are kind of limited. You know, Alice, Cooper's, Alice Cooper and Kiss are two of my five favorite bands. But, you know, that original band might not have been the virtuoso, Alice Cooper's band, and Kiss certainly weren't the virtuosos in 75 and 76. But then again, you go work with people like Pink Floyd, who are all mass-free musicians. Is it easier to work with someone like Pink Floyd, or is it easier to be in a studio with someone limitless that you can kind of beat in a submission like you did with the boys in Destroyer? Bob, is a treat. Eddie, I'll call soon. <laughs> beat into I'll submission. <laughs> That's very funny. Okay, well, first of all, don't put them down. Don't short sell those those two bands. And you know, it Pink Floyd. I mean, David Gilmour is one of the greatest guitar players of all time ever in history. He goes into my top three. And uh, who are and the other two? Who are the other two? Well, Jimi Hendrix, okay, heard of sure, him. and Jimmy Page. I mean, those three okay. guys. Oh, sorry. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. Well, hold it. Hold it. Slide Hendrix down one. So we'll say top four. Jeff Beck. Okay. Maybe the greatest ever. So, but that's it. You know, like you get those guys and everything else, everything after that is kind of, mm. but, um, uh, you know, Nick Mason's not the world's greatest uh, musician and, and, um, and Roger Waters would tell you he wasn't a great bass player, but they, they wrote amazing stuff and they had a really phenomenal sense for what worked in the studio. Rick was a great keyboard player on certain things, but not you know, perfect on other things. So I, I think every band has um, great strengths and some areas of um, relative weakness that need attention. But the idea is to, you know, try to play to those strengths, man. Try to find the strengths and play to them. The other thing is that sometimes people are afraid of reaching for their true potential. So one of the things my wife says about me, aside from, you know, from that I'm a kid that never grew up, is that I have a tendency to see see better in people than they see in themselves, which I, you know, actually I'll wear that. I'm proud of that. So I love to work with a musician and say, you hear that thing you just played there in those four bars? And they go, yeah. I go like, that's fucking genius. Listen to that. And 
all we need to do is get everything else up to that level. So let's go for it. You mm. know? Who is the who is the musician you worked with that most surprised you, that most upped their game in the studio, that most took – you said, whoa, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know this guy was capable of this. Was there somebody that really, that really floored you that you didn't see coming? You know, because I make it such a, a business of, of uh, studying the people that I'm about to work with, I don't usually get taken by surprise. Um, but – uh, you know, I would say for all I pushed the shit out of him, I think Peter Chris stepped up beyond what anyone expected him to be able to do and um, and played his ass off. On yeah, Destroyer. Destroyer, it's yeah, unbelievable. It's great. Yeah, it's a great the drumming on that. When I got to remix that thing and started listening to him again, you know, I know he complained. And I know that I set the parts for him in a way that made it possible for him to succeed, that didn't put him in a position where he, had to, where he was going to fail. But nonetheless, he played them. And, yeah. and it's great. Yeah, it is. Uh, let's go to Benji, who's in North Carolina. Hi, Benji. You're speaking with Bob Ezrin on Trunk Nation. What's going on today? Where in North Carolina, hey, Benji? Uh, I'm in Greensboro. Well, guess what? And I knew that. I just had a sense. So my daughter, Sarah, went to Greensboro College and then UNCG. I've spent a lot of time in your town. Oh, shut up. You're never going to believe this, dude. I am actually a local engineer and producer, and I'm doing a talk at Greensboro College tomorrow night. Good. Well, say hi from the Esmonds. <laughs> so great, man. I, and I just got finished with a gig with a uh, Ph.D. professor uh, who is a keys player from uh, Greensboro College. Also, literally an hour and a half ago, we just finished a gig. So that's so crazy, Good. man. Great. Unbelievable. What's uh, your anyway, question? so quickly, <laughs> quickly, uh, quickly, two things. Please tell me that those are bass keys on a piano that I hear in Detroit Rock City. Yeah, I, I, I do that all the time. Um, is that you? Is that you playing them? Yeah, I used to do that all the time. I, you know, actually, now that you mention it, I probably should have done it some on this Alice album. Maybe I should go back and re-record. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hey, well, hey, I, used to, I used to do that all the time, and um, especially when I was working with bass players who were more about power than finesse or tech technique you know, i shouldn't say you know i don't mean that in a pejorative way i just mean you know not a lot of notes but big fat bass notes in order to fatten right. up even more i would double them with the left hand of the piano yes there because you go benji I swear to God for, well and and one more one more quick thing uh real quick with today being such a single space music market and you being a concept known as a concept record producer has that affected the way that you would go about any new project at all no we're we're in a you know that thank you benji for the call i mean that's a whole nother discussion too is where we are now in the music industry and the pros and cons of it versus when you first i'm started. not i'm not in the music industry i'm really not i'm not a part of it i don't hang out i don't you know i don't talk to the but i'm just talking about the technology and we talked off the air i hate the fact that everything is so slammed and compressed yes. and everything today by a lot of guys okay we the agree on that. Wars we do and all that sort that. of thing but but the you know where i live i you know yes by sort of definition i we make stuff that goes out in the world. People pay for it, so it's it's music business in that sense. But I, you know, I want to work with people who are making music for their fans and who are making music for themselves, not for um, some record company executive or to some formula or anything like that. And and you know, thank God, after all this time, I don't really have to do that. I don't have to play that game, and I'd rather not. So I get to work with people like Fish. You know, they, they don't give a shit what the industry is doing. Right. They play. They're Fish, and they are who they are. They play. 
and they write and they perform brilliantly. They're smart, they're talented, they're consummate musicians, unbelievable musicians. And the same thing with, with, with Deep Purple. You look at those, every single one of them is a virtuoso yeah. on a certain level, and they know their fans, they want to play for their fans. And my job is to help them to... Um, reach a level that they hadn't even thought about before. And, and they do it because I can see the talent and I see the potential in all of them. And Alice Cooper is the same way. He's a consummate writer, performer, amazing guy. He knows, he, he, he just knows his, 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 uh, audience and, and he wants to make music for them. You know, the good news is none of us have to, to compete at pop radio. So right. I don't play by those rules. Right. Uh, Matt in Alabama. Go ahead, Matt. You're on with Bob Ezrin. Hey, guys. How are you? Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Uh, Where in Alabama are you? I'm in Huntsville. Oh, cool. I've been there. About uh, about two hours south of you uh, when you're in Nashville. I know exactly where Uh, you are. Yep. Uh, Question for you. You just mentioned the Deep Purple record, so you're working with Steve Morse again. Uh, I remember when In the Spirit of Things came out, the Kansas record. Yes. And the band was doing a big mass interview, and they were just talking about how uh, how great Steve played and how great he wrote. And and the, the host made a, a comment about, boy, yeah, you know, what I heard was great. And then the band member said, if you think what you heard was great, you should have heard some of the stuff that wound up on the cutting room floor. Is that is that typical? And, and is some of that stuff just really good but didn't work with the project or wouldn't have been received by No, I think what they were referring to I don't I don't remember that specific interview but what I think what they were referring to in Morse's case is like he never stopped playing. Like <laughs> didn't matter if the rest of the band was playing or not, he just kept playing and it was genius. I mean the stuff when they say the cutting room floor it wasn't like uh, you know he did 85 uh uh, solos and they were all brilliant and I decided to go ah fuck it don't use them <laughs> but um, it was that you know he just played and played and every take was amazing I wish I could have included every single take but I have a new approach you know as the tools have, have been provided us now where um, I can capture live performances and then go back and manipulate them after the fact which you could not really do very well with tape I did a, I did a lot of it I did more of it than most people but it was still fairly limited. Now with with um, digital technology, there's almost nothing you can't do. So for me, the idea is to get those great players to learn the songs before we get to the studio well enough that when we get to the studio, they're giving a performance. Mm-hmm. And I put them all together in the room. I make them all stand up like they're playing on stage. They can see each other. They get off on each other. I make sure that they can hear each other perfectly, that the, the atmosphere in the studio is one that, you know, of, of appreciation and, and it's performance oriented and they know we're listening and they know we love it and they know we appreciate it. And I cut maybe three or four takes. So now there's not a a lot of Steve, there's not a lot of Steve Morris on these records that you don't get to hear. <laughs> Josh in Jersey. Go ahead, Josh. Thank you for waiting and being so patient. You're on with Bob Ezrin. Hey, guys. Just a quick comment and then a question. I uh, just want another shout out to Lou Reed's Berlin album. It's so amazing. Uh, and I know it wasn't well you. received back when it came out. And just good, good on you guys for sticking to your guns because I'm only 24, but it's still a massively influential record. So just Thanks again for that. It's great. I love uh, to hear that. And my question, 
my question is, uh, it's been heavily rumored that Alice Cooper might be getting back together with his original band, maybe for an album, maybe for a tour. I personally don't think those guys get enough credit. That original band is so amazing. Uh, I'd love to see them live one day. They've done like a handful of stuff. So is there any truth to those rumors or is it just... Well, it there's there's certainly... I mean, stuff? we have been working together, um, all of us. The, the original guys and Alice and I have been working together on some material. No, we're not doing a whole album with the original band, but we've done some songs. And... Um, they're getting a, a special Lifetime Achievement Award in uh, Nashville in the middle of May, I believe. And then they're all going to play together there. And uh, you never know what you don't know. But, I mean, we've, we've really enjoyed being together. As we did, you know, we, we tried it out for uh, Welcome To when we went into New York exactly 40 years after the day we met at Max's. We were in the studio in the in the magic shop in New York City and playing all together. And it was such a great feeling, great experience that we said we got to do it again. And so we just did. So you, so these guys will be on this new Alice record? Yes. All right. Well, there you go, Josh. You're getting a little taste of there something. There you go, Josh. So look forward to that. Thank you for, uh, thank you for your call. Uh, maybe time to squeeze in one or two quick ones before we have to wrap up. John in California. Go ahead, John. Uh, hey, Eddie. Hey, uh, Bob. Um, just a quick question. I'm not sure. I'm not the biggest Alice Cooper fan, um, but I did see him open Goodbye, for uh, Motley. On the <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for calling. Thank you for calling. Say, no, no, go ahead. What do you no, got? No, go ahead, John. But, but my, my uncle uh, was a pretty big photographer in the 70s, and he took, I believe it was the uh, Muscle Love album cover. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if he, if he did that album or not. Um, but no, I didn't Harry produce Sloan. that one. I, did, okay. I didn't produce okay. that, but Jack Douglas, who we talked about earlier in the show, along with Jack Richardson, so my mentor and my mentee, uh, um, I put the two of them together to do that record. That was great. Okay. Anyway, that's a fantastic photograph. Thank you, John, uh, yeah, for the no, phone. You did, you, all right, oh, is there something you. else? Are you good? He did the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, the comedian... Um, I'm going blank now, but it had the uh, pot plants on the front, and then uh, it was all stone on the back uh, after uh, there was no plants Cheech on the front. Cheech and Chong? No. What's his name? Uh, big guy. I don't know. I'm sorry, John. I got to run. We're almost out of time here, but thank you for calling. Uh, real quick, Mike in Jersey. Jump in, Mike. Go ahead. Hi. I just wanted to mention that I think Dennis Dunaway is like, I would put him against up against any bass player you know something? He just played some some of the stuff on this album, like some of it with the other guys, the original guys, as we had discussed. But I also had him uh, on a couple of songs that we co-wrote. He came in and played with the the um, you know the studio band in Nashville. He's phenomenal. Huge thanks to Bob Ezrin and thanks to the team at Sirius XM in Toronto for their help and assistance. It was great to interview Bob Ezrin and have him do the show. Like I said, I, so much more I could have gotten into, but we got a lot in in that uh, hour and a half, two hours that I spent with him. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading and streaming each and every week. Be sure to uh, follow on all my social media I'm most active on Twitter, at Eddie Trunk, Facebook, fan page, Eddie Trunk, Instagram, Eddie Trunk, eddietrunk.com is the website. See you at M3 this weekend if you're headed that way or if you will be there in Columbia, Maryland. If not, I will see you out and about soon. Again, check eddietrunk.com. On the homepage are all my appearances 
Hope to see you out at some of them. Thanks to Katie Irizarry. As usual, she's the producer of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, and I will see you next week, Thursday, actually, for another all-new episode on iTunes and PodcastOne.com. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.